welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne will be joined by filmmaker Gloria Pancrazi and Michael Bronner, the president of Dr. Bronner's, to talk about the new film Coextinction, which is a beautiful and yet deeply disturbing documentary about the orcas of the Pacific Northwest and the intertangled issues that are putting them in so much danger. Wow, I bet it was uh, difficult for you to prepare for this interview, but I'm ultimately very, very grateful that this is out there and super excited to hear what they have to say. This is a great interview, and it's a great movie. And I think it's her first feature film, which is really impressive because it's really good. It's very engrossing. I mean, I hadn't realized, you know, all this stuff about the orcas and how there are these subspecies and and they're they're in terrible. I mean, you know, I know everybody's in danger, but I really learned a lot about the orcas. But the thing that really struck me was it's related to the title of the of the movie Coextinction. It's how species don't really go extinct in isolation. It's it's the interplay among all the species. And one of the species that's involved very, very intimately in this in this issue is the salmon. And the salmon are so threatened. I mean, there's loads and loads of salmon in the Pacific Northwest, but unfortunately, most of them seem to be ending up in fish farms. So yeah, all right. I won't go on and on about it because you should watch the movie and you should listen to the interview. Both are really, really worth it. Oh, wow. Yeah, I definitely want to see this. It's it's top of my list. But before we get to the interview, I just wanted to chat about uh, a few things. First of all, let's talk about this tweet. It is something that you, of course, brought to my attention, you being the queen of Twitter. And it was from Paul Darwin Picklesimer, which I I feel like entering Paul's family just so I could have an excuse to have the last name Picklesimer. But can you just talk a little bit about this tweet? Yeah, well, many of you probably already know, but if you don't, Paul is one of the defendants in the Utah case against direct action everywhere with his co-defendant, Wayne Shang, about rescuing pigs in this horrendous factory farm in Utah. And it's taken a really, really long time, but it finally seems to be going to trial. And one of the things that the defendants in these cases have been trying to do is to present a defense that they had a right to go into these facilities in order to rescue animals who would otherwise be dying, you know, who were in the brink of death. And that right to to keep the law against animal cruelty from being broken and just to do the right thing overrode the law against trespass. Anyway, so what what he tweeted, uh, they were not successful in being allowed to get this evidence before the jury. And what he tweeted was, my judge today compared taking piglets who would have been killed on a factory farm to a vet to slashing SUV tires to combat climate change in his ruling against allowing a jury to determine if my co-defendant and I acted out of necessity. This analogy that the judge drew just says so much because basically slashing SUV tires to combat climate change is also you're saying, well, there's this huge threat of climate change and I'm I, I'm doing this act of vandalism in order to prevent this SUV from from spewing fumes into the into the air. 
Now, to say that that's the same thing as rescuing an animal who is about to die, like like it's just missing the entire point. The entire point is that each of these animals matter. This is not just like you're you're making this tiny little gesture against a huge problem. You know, maybe it is that the huge problem of factory farming and you're taking an animal out of it. Maybe there is a little bit of, of that rationale. But the huge important rationale is that you're saving this particular animal's life. And they don't even notice that this particular animal, this little piglet, was it a living creature that mattered? That, like it's it's such an unbelievable disconnect, unbelievable disconnect. It just uh, reminds me of what these defendants are up against. All they're trying to do is to get a defense in front of the jury to explain to a jury exactly why they did this, the absolute truth of why they did this. And, you know, they're not being allowed to. Uh, so really, uh, that, that tweet really threw me. Yeah, that is a particularly egregious example. There are moments when we, of course, know about the disconnect, but sometimes we're just slapped across the face with it. I should mention in this context that the University of Denver, just just so people know, um, is actually starting a, I think it's a legal clinic or a legal program where where they will be defending activists. Well, they're, you know, the people practicing in, in the clinic, the, both the person who runs it and, and the students will be defending animal activists, which I think is really, really exciting and, and so desperately needed. They're actually looking for, um, for a director and a staff attorney. So if anybody out there is interested, go on the University of Denver site because... That sounds like a dream job. Yeah, absolutely. We'll also maybe be able to link to it in the show notes for this episode. So what else has been going on? You had a new Animal Law podcast go up. Yes, I did. And uh, I had Dia Andreu and Brooke DeKolf of Richmond Law and Policy. And and I've had people on from Richmond before and they're because they're doing a lot of work in the space regarding uh, consumer protection laws. And they are specifically talking about uh, two cases. They had to bring two cases because the law is somewhat different depending on how you bring the case that involve Aldi, the supermarket Aldi, and the fact that they they label their salmon sustainable. And what they mean by that is not what I think anybody in the world means by sustainable. They just take the industry definition for it and say, well, that's what everybody thinks. But it turns out, and they were able to ascertain, that people think sustainable means a whole lot. And actually, people tend to think that sustainable includes animal welfare, which I was surprised at, but that's what the evidence shows. And I think it kind of makes sense because People want to read a word like that on a label of something that they're buying, and they want to believe that that means I have permission to buy this product, and there's nothing wrong with this product. It's all good. So they really read a lot into those labels. So anyway, you, you, you're not allowed to lie on labels. Um, that's, that's the law. And so they're bringing these lawsuits, and hopefully they will be, you know, we're in sort of early stages, but they have survived motions to dismiss, and I, I'm excited about following them. So that's something to look forward to. And that will be on the Animal Law Podcast, this the July episode of the Animal Law Podcast. Cool. Keep an eye out for that. So just a couple other things before we get to the interview today. Uh, I wanted to talk briefly about an article called People Are Swearing Off Air Travel Because of Climate Anxiety. And this was in Yahoo!, 
And we wanted to talk about it today because, uh, well, I wrote it, first of all. And so we will link to that in the show notes as well. So this is in Yahoo Lifestyle's new unearthed series that explores the environment and and climate solutions. And I, I heard from my editor that this piece did extraordinarily well. So it's interesting that people are are curious about this topic. I have to say, I accidentally <laughs> looked at the comments, which, oh, you don't know, do I don't... That. Yeah, it was... They were very bad. But as I try and remember, it's like a specific group of people who leave comments. And and it's not like I take them personally. They just kind of get me like, did you read, did you read the article? Because <laughs> obviously people didn't. No. Uh, reading the article is definitely not something that people do before they write a comment. That would be silly. It's definitely easier writing about animal rights issues. They just seem so much more straightforward to me. On the other hand, you would not have gotten this huge number of people. <laughs> We're talking right. hundreds of thousands of people putting their eyes on this article if it had been about animal rights. Let's be realistic. It's sad, but it's true. Well, and I will give props to block member and former guest on our henhouse, Julie Sinistori, who's also a friend of mine. Because she is a scientist and she helped me out a lot, as did another scientist who's a flock member, Elizabeth Fonseca. Uh, and Julie was able to talk to me specifically about the biofuels. And all of this is like, it, it's like, you know, an, another language to me. I, I just, I, I need so much explaining. And, and I always appreciate when people are very patient about that kind of thing, especially because you're trying to boil it down to its most simple talking points. But I think that's why you're good at writing these, because you do get, you know, the people reading it are kind of in the same position as you. They don't know anything. About, I don't know anything about biofuels. They don't know anything about biofuels. So because you have to have it explained to you that you are good at explaining it to others. Well, thank you. And also thanks to my interviews. And so I just wanted to tell you that Julie was able to get in a line about meat, dairy and eggs, you know, which obviously I put in the article and my editor it is also a vegan and obviously left it in the article. But I really appreciated that, that like we were able to sort of backbend and get meat, dairy and eggs into the story. And uh, so that was cool. And I am determined that anytime I write about environmental issues to do that as much as I possibly can. So, yeah. Uh, so definitely check that out if you can and share it if you're so inclined. One more personal announcement real quick before we jump into the interview is that I wanted everyone to know that, first of all, on my Substack, which is jasminesinger.substack.com, that's my newsletter, and there's no E on Jasmine, and I know several of you subscribe, so thank you. I have started to include an audio version of my, my weekly posts, so if you're into podcasts, which if you are listening to this, you probably are, be sure to subscribe. You can subscribe for free at jasminesinger.substack.com, and you can listen to them if you want. We talk about just sort of self-growth issues and and values and productivity and activism, and it's all couched around veganism. So I'm enjoying that. And also that kind of goes with the bigger, the, the bigger issue of the fact that I have actually recently just left my full-time job and moved to a consultancy role there to write, hopefully do some writing for the company, which was Kinder Beauty, which I love, and also produce their podcast, which I'll keep you posted on. 
but I'm hoping to do more, uh, more at our hen house. I'm hoping to do more writing, more writing about these issues, these environmental issues, animal rights issues, and also more podcast production in general, more uh, coaching around activism and and things like that. So stay tuned for more on all of the above. But maybe on the outside, it, it doesn't look like much of a change. I'm sure it doesn't, but it has been like a pretty big deal on the inside. And I'm I'm working on some big creative projects that I hope materialize soon. So I wanted to just give everyone an update on that. Well, I'm sure everybody wishes you lots of luck, as I do too. Thank you very much. Well, another person who I think doesn't really need luck because uh, she's doing great work is one of our guests today. Both of our guests today are doing incredible work to change the world for animals, and I, I really admire them so much. So let's get to that interview. Gloria Pancrazi is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, writer, and impact campaigner. Her love of orcas led her to the Pacific Northwest to help protect them and resulted in her first feature film, Coextinction, which has screened at Vancouver International Film Festival, Santa Barbara International Film Festival, and plenty of other festivals. She's also spearheaded impact campaigns to bring global attention to the controversial dams, pushing orcas and salmon to extinction, violating tribal treaty rights, and contributing to the climate crisis. Michael Bronner is president of Dr. Bronner's, the top-selling natural brand of soaps in North America and producer of other organic body care and food products. He's also a grandson of the company founder, Emmanuel Bronner, and a fifth-generation soap maker. A philanthropist, activist, and active community leader, Michael is an advocate for the many social and environmental justice causes advanced by the company, including its role as a presenting partner of Coextinction. They will be joining Marianne right after this. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Welcome to our hen house, Gloria and Michael. Thanks for having us here. This is exciting. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Well, having just watched the movie... I'm very excited to have you because it is a tough movie to watch. I'm not going to say it isn't, but it's so moving. And I actually managed by the end to feel very inspired and hopeful. It took me on a road to get there, but I I really did. And the film kind of starts with the orca. It ends up being a very complicated story. The orca at the centerpiece, but there's a lot more pieces. And we're going to get into all of that. But Gloria, I'm wondering whether the trajectory of the film was actually your trajectory as well. How did you first get involved? Was it because of the Orca? Yeah, it, it very much followed my journey as I kind of 
went on this journey to understand how to protect them. And also very grateful that you liked the journey, but that you also felt inspired at the end, because that was a tricky bit to play with to make sure that people just didn't feel like there was nothing they can do to to create change, because there is. So I'm happy that resonated. And yeah, I've always loved orcas ever since I was a kid. And when I found out that this particular species that I knew of since I was five years old was facing extinction, I wanted to protect them. And for me, it was documentary films. But as my team started to talk to people on the ground and do the research, we started to realize this was connected to salmon decline, to then a whole ecosystem decline, to indigenous rights issues. And so very much you couldn't just tell the story about the orcas anymore. And we found that what we wanted to do is tell that story to people so they would also go on that journey. Yeah, well, you certainly did. I had no idea what I was getting into when I started the movie. There there are a lot of pieces going on here. Mike, how did you get first involved with this? And I, I, Dr. Bronner's does an enormous amount of philanthropy. I'm not even sure whether our listeners are aware of how much you're involved and it's really extraordinary. And I, and I want to get to that towards the end of the interview to really go into it. But let's start with this, this particular project. Why did you feel this film was such an important project to fund? And what was your involvement? Well, this project came to us via Glora presenting this to our PR department. And we often get films that come our way ask, asking us for support. But nothing has really intersected with so many things that we're passionate about. Indigenous rights, ocean conservation, renewable energy and non-renewable energy, animal welfare. And when we watched this film, it wasn't just that they pulled all these pieces together over the plight of the orca, but they did it in such a gorgeous way, which is a weird thing to say about a film that is so that presents such a dire warning for humanity. But it was extremely evocative. It touched all these points that we care deeply about. And we've, uh, you know, one thing too is that, you know, my wife is from Canada. We have done so many activist campaigns here in the States where we take our label and we change it to advocate for access to psychedelic medicines, for a fair uh, minimum wage, for regenerative agriculture. But we had never done anything up in Canada. And so just the fact that this film was so urgent that it crossed so many barriers, intersections with our philanthropy, and that it was aimed at a Canadian as well as an American audience, but a Canadian audience meant that you know, we didn't want to pass this up. And so... When this was presented to me, I watched the film and it was, you know, a devastating critique. It was, you know, a beautiful representation of amazing habitat where the orcas are threatened and the calls to action were, were, were concrete enough that we knew that if we actually put the weight of our company behind it, we could help Gloria and her team accomplish real change. Yeah, I, those are really really, really good reasons. The fact that, that something could come of it is is probably the most powerful of them. And you point out that it covers so many different issues, but at the same time, they're all kind of the same issue. They're just different pieces. I, I was thinking of it almost as like different pieces of a puzzle, all the way these things fit together. But I guess since the film did, and since you did, Gloria, we should start with the orca. And I admit to not knowing a lot. I, I usually think I know a lot about a lot of issues, but you know, wildlife issues are not my particular area of expertise. And I didn't know there were all these different species 
of orca. They all look pretty similar, but they are actually different species. So can you just start us off by telling us who the southern resident orca are and what is happening to them? Absolutely. Um, and you're so spot on with puzzle pieces. The amount of times we've said that in the making of this film, being like, where does this puzzle piece go? So I, I love that you said that. But the southern resident orcas are so subspecies of orcas. And I forget by on the top of my head, I want to say 10 subspecies around the world. I hope I'm not saying the wrong number right now. And they exist in all oceans all around the world. This particular species lives in the Pacific Northwest on the west coast of Canada and the U.S., particularly in the Salish Sea, which is British Columbia and Washington. They only eat fish, mostly salmon, which is something that a lot of people don't know. You know, orcas have that media portrayal in the public eye of being, you know, killer whales. They eat cute little seals and they are so scary and da-da-da-da-da. And as a person who grew up loving them, it's it's so interesting, the truth behind that, and is that it, they are incredibly intelligent beings, incredibly caring beings. The way they care for each other throughout their life, they spend their whole life with their families, they really truly celebrate and grieve together. They have a whole part of their brain dedicated to empathy that we humans do not have. How you feel about your friends and your family is how they feel about their family. A new birth happens, they celebrate that. There's a super pod that happens. All the orcas come together and breach, and it's amazing. And if you see it, it just feels like a celebration. And then if an orca dies, same, they come together, they grieve together. You might have heard of J35, who carried her dead calf for 17 days. And when she was too tired to carry her calf, her family members would come and carry her for her until she was ready to finally let go. It's a heartbreaking story, but it really does show you just how deeply those family ties are. And it's less a scientific part of it, but it's so important to talk about that when you talk about these orcas. And there's only 74 of them left, and they're facing all of these threats that we go about in the film. And as you said, we realized that it's much more than just orcas we're losing. It's an entire ecosystem, and we really played with that co-extinction. So when you lose a species, you lose much more than one species. The title of the movie is perfect. And I have heard of, you know, I, I heard news stories in the zeitgeist about the orca who carried her dead baby for a long time. But one thing that struck me hearing about it in the movie is that it seemed like that was not typical. It was an unusual event. And you mentioned a couple of times, or other people mentioned within the movie, that there was just this sense that she was telling us something, whether consciously or unconsciously. It was it was almost a message. Is that something that that you felt and that people involved in this issue felt? Yeah, so it is something that orcas can do and have done. So I think a, a year before J31, Suchi also lost her calf and carried her calf, but this was an unprecedented amount. So we had never seen an orca carry a calf for that long. And that's what, you know, if an orca carries a calf for one day, doesn't make worldwide news. But if an orca carries a calf for 17 days, it makes worldwide news. So that's where it got so much attention. Now that being said, like, there was something that happened that summer that there was a lot of attention on these whales and it was really hard to not see it as as a cry for help. As you know, a lot of people said that almost like, look at what you're doing. My kid died and it's it's your fault, but it's also your responsibility to fix it. So I think a lot of people felt that. Yeah, it's hard not to. So uh, like, as we said at the beginning, there's a lot of different interconnected pieces to this puzzle. And it starts out being about the orca, and it's all about the orca throughout. But 
the first piece of the puzzle that you really start to to confront is the Trans Mountain Pipeline and its impact on this area and what is happening to the orca. I mean, you're noticing that things are happening to the orca, and this is the first piece that you discuss of why it may be. And I guess we could talk about what's happening to the orca, though most of it seems pretty simple that they just don't have enough to eat. But what is the Trans Mountain Pipeline and what is the impact of it on why these these animals are starting to starve to death? So yeah, how is the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project, long name, um, affecting the orcas? It's really, again, like this story is just so many like death by a thousand cuts. There's not one and they all, all the reasons why these orcas are suffering, they're all intertwined. So First things first, the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project would increase the amount of tanker traffic in the orca's home. More tankers, more oil tankers. Now, these orcas, they echolocate to find food. And noise disturbance, particularly from big ships like tankers, come in the way of that. So imagine there's already a lack of salmon. These orcas are trying to feed themselves, feed their families, survive. And all of a sudden, it's harder to find the little amount of fish that exists in the water. On top of that, you know, like I said, they're incredibly social. And just like all of us, they need to interact with one another and socialize. And when there's noise disturbance, it also comes in the way of that. It also adds stress. It could change their behaviors. Let's say they're hunting or reproducing. Big oil tanker comes through, they might change their behavior. So we're impacting them in all those ways. Not to mention what happens if there's an oil spill that would decimate the population. Now, there's a whole other part to the story is that this increases carbon emissions. It contributes to the climate crisis. <laughs> no, it is unbelievable that the reason we're doing this is to dig up more oil. Just what there we need. You go. There you go. And among many other things, of course, the climate crisis is impacting these orcas, but it particularly impacts the salmon that are very temperature sensitive species. So with warming waters, the salmon don't survive. And so it's all connected to that. It's also actually being built through rivers that salmon spawn in. I mean, any angle you look at it, and of course, it's being built through unceded land without indigenous consent. So it's just any way you look at it, this pipeline is, is awful and shouldn't be built. And the Canadian government bought it. So it's incredibly hard to stop it because they're very, very invested in, in carrying it through. Mike, do you want to add anything to that? Is this an issue that you've, you've been passionate about for a while? Well, I mean, the intersection that Gloria talks about there is, is exactly why we're passionate about it, right? It is the carbon emissions leading to climate change. It's the trespassing on indigenous territories without their consent. It's, it's the effect on the environment, especially with all these gas spills and other uh, leakages that are happening that always seem to happen, right? No matter how many assurances we get from gas companies, it's, you know, the effect on the animals because of the rising temperatures. We are big proponents, of course, of a renewable economy and renewable energy. And we have a company that is 100% powered by renewable energy. And we plan to be completely climate positive by 2025. And, you know, you're, you're talking about a pipeline that not only is transporting oil, but it's actually getting that oil from fracking which is a whole host of, I mean, that's, that's, that's uh, oil drilling times 100, maybe times 1,000 from the tar sands in you know, the, the interior of Canada. And so the fact that we hopefully can generate some even more opposition to this pipeline through the plight of the orcas, not to, not to use the orcas for anything else other than just to save them themselves, 
is an opportunity, hopefully, to shine even more light on this issue. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I, I don't think it's exploitation of the orca to demonstrate to people that they are suffering because of this. And well, I don't want to get into a whole discussion of it because we could spend the entire time talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. But does the, what happened with Keystone XL that 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 it was stopped? Does that give any hope to the idea that that this pipeline might that there is hope for it to be stopped? I think so. I that definitely gives me hope. And I also look at fight like fighting to stop it, and they're not backing down. And I find hope in the film and, and hoping that, you know, we can bring this to more people, get people more involved. We're developing this whole impact campaign to get people to not just watch the film, but then take action. So there's hope and there's nothing but having hope that that we have to stop it. So, yeah. Yeah. Hope is hope is hard to hang on to, but you, you've, you've got to or something akin to it anyway. One of the points that really comes across in this movie is the need, and you that you both just mentioned, is the need for indigenous leadership in this fight. Can you explain the role of the indigenous people of this area and why it is so crucial to follow their leadership? I got into the film already knowing that indigenous voices were important, but that understanding like deepened by a million times making it. Any issue we covered in the film it's connected to indigenous rights. So whether it's the pipeline being built through unceded land, fish farms operating on unceded land without the nation's consent, dams being built, removing indigenous people from their land and then violating treaty rights. Just everywhere you look, you see that. And they're the first people to be impacted by these things. People like the Nambi Nation who is suffering from lack of salmon now. And they're seeing this impact mentally and physically and all of their well-being in their nation. So you're you're seeing that, but then also they're the ones on the front lines, you know, taking action. And a lot of the times activism and conservation work is led by white settlers that maybe don't understand that. And we need to amplify the indigenous voices who are at the forefront of these battles because that's how we're going to create the change. So it can't be hovering on the activism. We have to work together. You also brought up the, the the term unceded land. Can you tell people what that means and why this is unceded land? Yeah, so unceded land is that, so in BC, there's actually, there was never any treaties signed. The land was never ceded. It was never passed on by any treaties or any other ways to the Canadian government. So it's not Canada. It's First Nations land. There's a legal argument there. I mean, even when there are treaties, generally they were very unfairly gotten. <laughs> you could make an argument that they're not valid, but there wasn't even a treaty here. Like, there was nothing. So a lot of times the point was made that that when this land, particularly by the indigenous people in the film, and there are quite a number of them, that when the land was occupied exclusively by indigenous people for many, many, many years and generations, things stayed in balance, and and now they are completely out of whack, and and everything is dying. I, and you know, this is an obvious story. Like it's not like this isn't something we don't hear all the time. But do you think it's particularly important to emphasize it that it, as a way to bring indigenous voices to the forefront to show that they pulled this off? They pulled living on Earth off, and we're just not doing it. I think so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that we are looking at a lot of extractive industries right now that don't have the more holistic picture of 
how we're going to take care of the spaceship we're on, spaceship Earth, as my grandfather would call it, in order for it to be seeded down to future generations. And, you know, that that understanding the indigenous people had, right, that they were borrowing the land from their their uh, descendants. And so we're looking at, you know, salmon industries, we're looking at climate change mitigation with carbon sequestration. And these are all areas in which, you know, the indigenous tribes have a lot of knowledge based off of many generations of environmental stewardship that we need to listen to and we need to learn from and not just kind of roll over in order to line our own pockets. Yeah. Another area where this is having impact and another one that you mentioned is you know, our audience is vegan, passionate vegans, and they're not into eating fish, period. But it is really important to just differentiate between the way indigenous people have always farmed, uh, f- eaten salmon, fish for salmon, and what's going on now. So can you tell us a little bit about the salmon farms? And our listeners may not eat salmon, but we see it in supermarket all the time and on menus, and it's everywhere. There's just salmon, salmon, salmon. I think when I was a kid, which was a very long time ago, Salmon was a really specialty item. It was not common. It was a very special food. Now it's just everywhere. So where does all this salmon come from, uh, particularly in this area? It's from these farms. Can you talk about them a little? Yeah, I'll start with like very basic information to like understand these fish farms, right? So they were actually started as a way to help the salmon from overfishing the wild stocks. So it was a really cool idea to start with. And and people were actually kind of hopeful about them at the beginning. It was like, hey, instead of fishing the wild salmon, we're going to have fish here and we're going to be able to to farm it and it's going to be great. But again, there was a lot of not listening to indigenous knowledge or to local knowledge about where to put these farms and how to operate them. And they put a lot of fish in these pens, right in salmon migration routes. And if you read, there's an amazing book by Alexandra Morton, who's in the film called Not On My Watch. And she explains everything about the fish farms and the fight that's been going on to remove them. And it's so interesting. The companies came and were like, where should we not put these fish farms? And there was a bunch of spots that they put down. Where did the companies put the fish farms exactly on those pots? So anyways, what happens is there's way too many fish Atlantic salmon, not Pacific salmon, into these pens. And it's an environment that creates a lot of diseases that are then spread into the ocean because it's in the salmon migration routes in these areas that they did not recommend because there's a lot of currents, et cetera, et cetera. So this is spreading especially PRV, Rio virus, a disease that makes Chinook salmon heart cells explode. It also um, fosters for sea lice, which is usually a little amount isn't that big a deal. But on the little salmon that's that pass by, if they get too many of, of the sea lice on them, it actually eats them. So it's it's killing baby salmon. So all of these different ways that the fish farms are killing wild salmon. And it's just interesting to see that there is a connection between, you know, overfishing and fish farms. And there's also a lot of mislabeling happening in superstores. So you might, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, if I stop eating farmed salmon, does that work? Should I eat wild salmon? And I know, again, a lot of you listening don't eat salmon. So kudos on you for doing that. It's just that the issue is really big. And and I definitely agree with what you said of salmon. I also used to see it as something that was very special, like for holidays. 
and there's not so much of that left. And I think a, a really important thing is to change the way we see salmon. People see fish as this very, you know, like people might see orcas with a lot of love and compassion, right? But if you look at a little fish, people don't see that. And so I think reconnecting people with salmon is a key thing. And we try and do that in the film by meeting Ico Jones, who, you know, swims with these salmon all the time. And you can see the beauty in these fish that are so resilient. And they, you know, they travel like so many miles just to make it back home and they feed this entire coast. And I used to eat salmon was my favorite food. I used to eat a lot of it. And you did not confess that this is breaking news. It's breaking news. <laughs> um, and as soon as I started the film, I, I well, before starting the film, I remember my uh, my boss on when I was monitoring the orcas, she was like, by the end of the summer, you're not going to say that. And of course, she was right by the end of the summer. I, this is the first meat I stopped eating and and so went on. But I think at the core of it was just loving salmon and realizing how amazing they are. So for anyone that might still be eating it, it's just like reconnect with the species and learn how amazing they are. And if you are not eating it, then share that with people, you know, like share your love and your passion for these animals because it does have an impact. I will also say something Chief Ernest Alfred always says. He says to, if you're at a restaurant where they serve salmon or if you're at a grocery store where they serve salmon, go talk to the manager and very kindly ask that they do not serve that anymore. Elena, who I co-directed the film with, has done that before. So, you know, those are ways that you can take action and, you know, demand change even if you don't eat fish and just do it kindly, of course. Yes, well, we all all try to be kind. (laughs) Yeah, I think that story is so interesting because it does uh, it does appeal to my vegan soul that they actually thought it was a good idea in the beginning to save the wild salmon by doing farm salmon, but that just doesn't work. Like, like thinking up a more efficient way to get animals, it doesn't work. We, we just have to stop, stop eating them because people will always exploit. They will always exploit. All right, salmon farms. So that's another piece of the puzzle. So the salmon are dying and so the orca are dying and then the ships are going by creating the noise so that even if there were salmon, they can't find them. Then there are other animals in the area too that are being really harshly affected and one is the grizzly bears. And and and, and there's this point where you're, uh, you and some other folks are traipsing through the forest in an effort to find out what is happening to the grizzly bears. There was an allusion to this in the film, but I just wondered how scary was that? Because grizzly bears, I think of as like among the scariest animals. Like they're pretty, they're they're pretty dangerous, aren't they? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm laughing because it did not cross my mind, not even once. Well, are you from the east? Because you know we have black bears here, and you know they're scary, but they're not really that dangerous. I, I am. I think different. I was just. I, I know grizzly bears are dangerous. It just, in that moment, I was in California. I was living there at the time. We saw the news and it was just like, we have to go film it. There was no, it was just like, this is part of the story. We have to go film it now. And I remember I told my mom this. I was like, mom, and I was so excited about it. I was like, mom, we're going to go find emaciated grizzly bears. And we're going to film them. And my mom was like, really, Gloria? And, and she always laughs about this. She's like, do you remember that time you told me you went to go see emaciated grizzly right. bears not just grizzly like, bears but ones that are really really hungry and, and i shouldn't yeah, be laughing yeah. because it's a tragedy how hungry they are it's more funny that 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 didn't even cross my mind as a dangerous thing I, and you know th- that speaks to just how amazing our team is and and coyote who led us like i always felt so safe and yeah yeah and and that scene actually reminds me of this just this is kind of a filmmaker question like 
and and this is something you alluded to as well, Michael, that the film manages to capture this the incredible beauty of this area. I mean, both I, I guess it's both um, British Columbia and state of Washington. There's filming in both of them. But you also show the devastation that has been visited upon it by showing the fish farms. I mean, the film, the filming of the salmon from within the fish farms, as opposed to the filming of the salmon in the one river that is running wild, it's just such an unbelievable juxtaposition. So as a filmmaker, how do you strategize doing that with the appropriate balance and, you know, making the impact, but not just making people like walk away from the film crying and feeling hopeless? It's something I'm continuing to learn. I'll, I'll tell you that. It's, this was my first film. So it was a lot of, uh, and it was led by this really strong love and passion that I have for, for the orcas in this coast. And so I think that kind of was just always, I think I truly figured it out as I was making this film. And now I have this new understanding of like, okay, how do we make sure that we really do create that impact and not just tell a doom and gloom story? How do we bring in the the solutions and the healing and the hope without also, it's such a tough balance between like, you know, it'll be okay, don't worry. And we're doomed. How do you go between the two? And, it's pretty much and life I think these that, days, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still learning how to do it. I'm glad that that resonated in co-extinction. And I, and I think that's, that's it. It's not shying away from the hard truths or the, the hard or uncomfortable conversations or the heartbreakingness of it. And it's also not, you know, overplaying that to, to fear people into taking action. No one ever takes action well when they're just really, really scared. I think, I mean, we do, but I've, I've read a lot of interesting documents about how fear-based talks to get people to act is not the way to get to people to act. So it's just an interesting side note. But yeah, I guess then, you know, like I love to share that story about the orcas and how they care for one another, because I think that's a way that people want to take action afterwards. They really, you protect what you love. It's that, you know, amazing old saying. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, Michael, is that one of the things that you really look for when you're looking for a project to support something that will inspire people to act? I, I would assume it would be. Is that something that appealed to you about this? Absolutely. Absolutely. We want to support films that are going to galvanize people in a positive way. And there's always a negative side of any issue, a negative side meaning the dark side, right? You have to show it. It's a it's the reality we're trying to shy away from or to get away from. We don't want to shy away from it. We want to constructively get away from it, but you have to show hope, right? And you have to show that by you know watching this film understanding the issue that you can take an action that can have a cumulative effect with everybody else's actions to create real change and that was uh, extremely important in in supporting this film as well yeah i think that one of the things that comes across about the film and addressing the question of hope because i don't even use the word hope that much anymore because seems like too much to ask. <laughs> like, like you kind of do it because you have to do it. Because what else are you going to do with your life? Just let it all happen. So don't even worry about whether there's hope. Just just do the right thing. But one of the things that came across is how much some of the people in this particular fight really care about each other. And I assume that's one of the one of the things that keeps people going is that you're, it's not just that you're fighting, you're fighting together. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the people you met doing this and and why they helped make it? worthwhile to get involved in such a difficult issue? I love to talk about the community because truly so many wonderful people. And, you know, when we were talking about hope, it's actually one of the thoughts that came into my my mind. It's that 
a way for me to show the hope is to show what people are doing. And there, and there's so many people that even make it into the film that are doing incredible things. And it is the most inspiring thing. It is the thing that like will keep me going always, you know, like seeing Will George and he has received so much heartbreakingness and injustice. And yet he continues to fight with the most, you know, welcoming and loving energy. This is maybe a bit of a spoiler, but I'm going to go for it. He actually was sent to jail for peacefully protesting, quote unquote, on his unceded land, the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. And, you know, when he got out, he, he's out on bail right now. And when he got out, we were all checking in on him. And he was like, you know, what? like, obviously he's not okay, but he's okay. And he just continues to show up with that fire inside of him and checking in. One of the first things he said was checking in on me because I was there in the courtroom when he got taken away. And I was just like, you're checking in on me right now. Like you've just, you've just dealt with all this awfulness, you know? So anyways, definitely there is a caring for one another and you do need that because it is incredibly demanding and heartbreaking work. There is a lot of burnout. Um, We've all had it in the team. And if you're not there for each other in those moments, it can be really, really hard. But to have people that either get exactly what you're going through or understand parts of it and just are there for each other, it's the way to get through it. I'll make a, you know, it's like the orcas when, when J35 wasn't doing okay, her family was checking in on her. And it's one thing I try and remember, like the one way we'll protect these orcas is by acting the way they do, working together. Yeah, that's a beautiful sentiment. We haven't really reached all of the pieces of the puzzle. And I think one of the pieces of the puzzle that people have heard of over the years, at least I have, is the impact of the dams on the salmon and thus on the orca and thus on every on the grizzly bears and everybody else. I have to say, I've heard about it, I've read about it, but I never really saw film of these dams and the thought that any of these fish managed to make it upstream, any of them, I mean, I know most of them don't manage, but they have to go upstream to spawn. What they have to fight their way through is just mind boggling. But at, at this point, you know, and I think people may have heard of that issue, but you really emphasize the politics when talking about this this particular issue. And it was very frustrating. And it, this was in Washington state, which, you know, probably has the most environmentally progressive governor in in the U.S., which isn't perhaps saying all that much, Jay Inslee, but it was still like the whole episode was just frustration. Is that how you felt about the political process? It, do you feel like there's any value in it at all? It was incredibly frustrating being, yeah, seeing the the bureaucracy of it, the the amount of studies that have been done with the same answer and, and you know, solutions at the end and the amount of money spilled into there that just they're not able to get past that. And it is because of a lot of corruption, a lot of bureaucracy. So it's incredibly hard, incredibly frustrating. There is an, an update. So on July 11th, we're going to know, gov- I should, should backtrack, Governor Inslee and Senator Maria Cantwell did a a new draft report looking at the best ways to to protect the salmon, which is a report I will say. There's been so many studies of studies doing studies, this. studies, studies. Yeah, it's crazy. That's what comes across is your intense frustration with the fact that it's all talk, no action. But this one does feel different, mostly because there's been pressure from people in. Idaho as well, as well as Oregon, saying we want these dams breached. So so it does feel different this time. There's a public comment period until July 11th, and then we're going to know the decisions. If it's not the right decision, and everyone listening, go to Coextinction Film, the Instagram page, because we will have calls to action for you to take. 
yeah, it's it's frustrating. But again, kind of like for the pipeline, it's just you have to keep going. And there's a saying which is just keep going and it's a crack in the dams. So, you know, you might do one campaign, it might not breach them, but it creates a crack and then another campaign and it, it creates another crack until they're finally breached. It's long standing and it will have to happen eventually. So hopefully we're able to make, make it happen sooner rather than later. So the film, I want to hear about how what's going to be happening with the film. I know it's already won a number of awards. And Mike, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about plans for distribution and how Dr. Bronner's will be participating in promoting the film. It's not just promoting the film. It's it's promoting people doing something because of the film. Absolutely. And that's uh, we're, that's something we're really excited about. Uh, one thing we are waiting for, and hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, we'll have more knowledge, is is when the film will be released. Because it's, uh, you know, we're hoping, and I know Gloria is hoping, that we're going to get a really awesome streaming service, um, VOD, big promotion uh, from the distributor to really move this film into people's homes so they can watch it. But we are waiting for that to happen. We have everything set up. We have labels. And I know that uh, your audience can't see it, but we have the special four-ounce label that we're using to promote the film. If you know our products uh, on the front, instead of our normal messaging, it just has some pictures of orcas and it says, protect the orcas. And if you read the text, uh, you may know Dr. Bronner's from the the kind of the, the very spiritual, urgent message on Absolutely. each bottle that talks about uniting the human race and about breaking down religious barriers and barriers between races so that we can all come together as one and understand our common humanity. Well, that was the urgent message of my grandfather's time born out of the fires of the Holocaust where his parents were lost. Now, we are taking that same idea of using our soap as a vehicle for for change by talking about all the issues in this film, right? Talking about the orcas, talking about the fact that there's only 73 of them. I believe now there's 74. Our labels are wrong, but in a good way. Talking about uh, what people can do, uh, such as you know, take action to support indigenous sovereignty, you know, break down these dams. All the reports that have come out for years and years and years, seven volumes, I believe, of reports talk about the need to break down these dams. And yet the government of Washington continues to drag their feet to say, we need more information. Well, we are going to we are going to drive people, even in Washington state, we have a Canadian campaign, but it's also going to run in Washington state so that people can tear down these dams. And then, of course, to stop these fossil fuel pipelines. And so you'll see this label on our 32-ounce soap spread in every store in Canada. Uh, it's going to be bilingual, and that's um, definitely something very difficult and different than what we have to do here. And then we're going to surround it with this uh, social media campaign where we're going to be driving action on those different points and also, of course, driving viewership. We have these beautiful end cap designs. So you're going to go into these stores and there's going to be all this information about this film that everyone can can see, can uh, read about, uh, watch and, and take action. So we're super excited. Yeah, that is amazing. What an amazing project. Did you want to add something, Laurie? I do. I just, I mean, I just, Mike got to say at the beginning uh, about why he chose us and, and how stoked he is. And I just want to say how amazing it is, just how amazing Dr. Bronner's is, the fact that we get to bring this film to people with them. And like, and this whole campaign that they have planned out is just absolutely incredible. And I, 
I cannot wait for these soaps to be out. There's going to be, can you imagine any person going out? I, I see it all the time. I go to grocery stores here and, I'm, and I see the, the Dr. Bonner soap and then that will have protect the orcas with all these disinformation for people. It's going to be incredible in terms of impact. So we're very, very grateful. And yeah, just wanted to say that. And, and, and we know from experience, and this was the experience of my grandfather, he used to give out unlabeled bottles of soap when he gave his speeches in Los Angeles. And he was talking, of course, about uniting the world and breaking down religious barriers and, and understanding our common humanity. But people ended up coming for the soap and leaving. And he noticed that. So, I mean, not, not everybody, but some people, because the soap was so good. So he put his message on the label specifically to trap them in the shower. <laughs> because if they if they took that uh, that label with them and then they went in the shower and you know what, what are you going to read? <laughs> yeah, what are you going to read? Are you going to read your your ivory soap? I mean, that's that's it, ivory soap. And so the message on the label will hopefully not just be absorbed there on the store shelves or you know in people's bags, but you know there's something about being in a warm you know, hot shower where you're kind of alone with your thoughts, that messages resonate. And we hope to really change a lot of minds um, that. in that sacred space. And it's a hell of a soap, I have to say. So, Mike, a little bit broader than just this movie, I, I noticed in the in the press release that you're supporting this through what is called the All One International Initiative. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. That's a initiative that was crafted together with uh, our PR director, Ryan Fletcher, that really tries to take the global mission and have local impact, right? Because I am responsible for the international uh, sales of our soap. And, you know, we sell in over 50 countries and we are always trying to not just sell our soaps, but, you know, actually spread our mission, spread purpose, right? Make make positive change wherever our soap is sold. And in a way, our distributors are kind of like our family, right? We call them the all one international family and they really buy into the purpose of, of Dr. Bronner's. When you talk to them, you, it's like you're talking to, to my brother or my sister, <laughs> like you're feeling the soap. But we found that while people around the world love what we do, we've been really big in, in legalizing industrial hemp and decriminalizing psychedelics and other drugs and raising the minimum wage. But oftentimes, because of, you know, our center is here in the States, it's got a very American focus. And so what we try to do is, in a way, make activists out of our distributors and say, okay, what can you do? You know, we have, you know, nine issue areas ranging from drug policy, community betterment, animal advocacy. What can you do in your country what can you support? We'll, we'll set aside money for that, that you can support that would really move the needle on things that are maybe often ignored, that really, um, you know, a small amount, small ripple can have, you know, real lasting effects. And so we created the All One Initiative, and it's 1% of the previous sales to these countries, 1% of that goes into a reserve that funds all these different organizations. For example, in, you know, in Singapore, you think of a really kind of restrictive, you know, known for being a really restrictive society. You know, we're, we're doing a lot with that to promote LGBTQ rights, right? And really kind of making a step there. In other countries, it's a lot about animal advocacy, right? And really not just, not just promoting 
veganism, but like really diving into banning, you know, cage-free um, battery cages and, and promoting cage-free farms. And so in Canada, we have quite a few different organizations we support. Uh, some of them involve the uh, indigenous stewardship of river sheds and Others uh, include, you know, funding all these projects like Wild Orca, which is actually even before we were partnering with uh, Coextinction, was really promoting the education around how orcas fit in with just the as an apex predator in the food chain. And without that being there at the top, then, you know, essentially we all can perish, which ultimately was reflected in the movie Coextinction. Wow. Uh, you're doing so much. It's really, really extraordinary. And I'm so glad that one of the things you were doing was helping promote this movie. All right. So you don't have the streaming platform yet. So how can people stay on top of what's going on? And hopefully you will have it by the time this airs, but tell us where people go to find out more about what's going on with the movie and when they'll be able to see it. I will say our most updated, like if there's screenings next to where you're you live, all of that is our Instagram. So at Coextinction Film, you can also go to coextinctionfilm.com. That will have also information, but because it's a website, it's not as always updated. So, or just not as, the Instagram is the most interesting place. Okay, great. And you'll also be able to see calls to actions there, which is really rad. For example, big calls to action at the moment to breach the dams. Perfect. So exciting and really an extraordinary movie. And I'm not going to tell people that it's the easiest movie to watch because some of it's tough, but it is very, very... Re By the time I was done, I was really, really glad I had I had watched it and it was extremely rewarding. So thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you so much. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Is the writing on the wall for American agriculture? That is the question being asked by Gregory Bloom on his Meeting Place column, The Meat Business. Sounds dire, doesn't it? What will we all eat? And of course, what this is totally all about. Well, it has to do with the Dutch farmer protests, which you may have heard of, quote unquote farmer. It has to do with the the, the constant trope on the part of uh, the meat industry that they are the farmers. <laughs> there are no other farmers other than people in the meat. I don't even call them farmers. They're warehousers. Anyway, so these Dutch farmer protests, just, you know, by all of these these Dutch farmers, uh, Dutch livestock owners, who are, according to Gregory, being unfairly targeted with heavy-handed environmental regulations. And it sounds like the Netherlands is really doing quite an amazing job. The stories that I've heard is that most of these protests, which have been quite vehement and, and roadblocking and, and dramatic, you know, is by uh, most of the, the quote-unquote farmers are pretty wealthy. But, you know, maybe some of them are not. I don't know. 
But according to this article, quote, last month, the Dutch government passed a law to reduce nitrogen oxide and ammonia emissions to full 50% in the next eight years, estimating that livestock numbers will need to be reduced by 30%. Amazing, right? Just amazing. What great work. Of course, Gregory doesn't think so. He says that by calling this legislation a climatologically unavoidable transition, they're attempting to shift the blame for its negative fallout onto the farmers themselves. Unavoidable transition does not sound blame shifting or blaming to me. It's just like, well, you know, we can't avoid this. So what are we going to do? But, you know, the farmers, quote unquote, farmers are holding up signs, writing in the sky, help, no farmers, no food. In many places, according to Gregory, farmers have formed huge tractor convoys. Yes, they have. And in some cases have even resorted to spraying manure onto government buildings in protest. They've resorted to that. Like they had no other, they had no other recourse. All of this is about livestock. It's not about farming. You would think there was no, uh, nothing else to eat in the entire world, which is the way they would like it to be. But you know, Gregory's upset about it. It does not seem wise at all to exasperate and punish farmers who are so exasperated. You know, when I get exasperated, I frequently spew manure all over public buildings. I do it all the time. It does not seem at all wise to exasperate and punish farmers who are so essential to sustaining life itself. No, they're not. In fact, they're essential to taking life itself because they are livestock growers. They're not farmers. They don't grow like food in the ground. But that's what's happening as is encapsulated in this rural dictionary definition. I don't know where you got this rural dictionary. It's it's supposed to be sarcastic. I, I'll warn you. Farming, noun. The art of losing money while working 400 hours a month to feed ungrateful people who have been convinced that you are trying to kill them. You know, I'm not sure that farmers are trying to, or that livestock growers are trying to kill me. They're trying to kill animals. They don't care if they kill me. But I love plant farmers. I love them. So just why are government regulators biting the hands that feed the people? I believe the answer to this question is that to radical environmental globalists... When do we globalists? It's just like a term that, you know, they love to hate. Farmers and ranchers represent a grave threat to their ever-growing populist agenda that other industries do not. Well, they, they pose a grave threat to the future of the earth. So if that's my agenda, I, I guess that's true. I particularly love this line. Stripping farmers from their almost spiritual connection to the land won't be easy. Can I remind you, this is totally about livestock. It's about cutting the amount of livestock. The Dutch farmers recognize there is strength in numbers. They're fighting for the future of their multi-generational family farms, which are worth a fortune and which they're making a fortune out of, and the future of food. But will they prevail? I sure hope they will. I sure hope so. Our next story Where's the beef? This is from Mindy Brashear's Food and Safe and Sound column, also on Meeting Place. She's referring to the very, very old funny line from some commercial, Where's the Beef? I think it was a Wendy's commercial. And she said, it really should be, Where's the meat? Where's the poultry? I mean, they just, like, it's the same arguments over and over. And she's complaining about the terms. And she points out that last week, France became the first country in the EU to ban the use of terms that define meat or other animal-based products to describe plant-based products. Terms such as sausage and steak can only be used to describe animal-based products. The only exception is the term burger, which is the only exception, how does she know? 
which is more ambiguous and allows for the inclusion of other non-meat materials, which is similar in the U.S. Well, actually, sausages allow for the inclusion of other non-meat materials, and apparently steak does too, but I digress. So the whole idea here is that consumers are confused. And confusing consumers, I agree, would be a bad thing. People should know what they're buying. Obviously, every plant-based company wants people to know what they're buying because it costs more to buy plant-based meat analogs. But they completely ignore that the law definitely provides, at least in the U.S., and I am sure in France and elsewhere, that it's, it's illegal to confuse consumers, to lie about what's in your product. And if you're just saying sausage and you're not making clear that it's plant-based, that would be a problem. That ain't what's happening, Mindy. That's not the problem. Uh, but she says France has taken an important step and we should take note and follow suit in the U.S. It is an action needed because it misleads consumers along with other concerns. <laughs> what are those other concerns? <laughs> I can imagine what those other concerns were. You're not going to make as much money if people know it tastes just as good to eat plants. Then she lists all of these problems that are completely irrelevant to the point that the problem is if you mislead consumers, which you're not doing here because the products are all labeled plant-based. It's just telling people what they are designed to taste like uh, using these terms. So, you know, she says if there's an outbreak, by which she means an outbreak of food poisoning caused by meat, <laughs> and a consumer is asked to retrace their consumption of a product, it maybe is possible they perceive that they consumed meat, poultry product, which could obviously be a lot more likely to be causing an outbreak. Nutritional issue, you know, it's not the same nutritional quality. Uh, it's better my opinion. Allergic reactions, all of these are complete, would be completely valid concerns if she wasn't getting the entire premise wrong. Am I repeating myself too many times? And she talks about the USDA having a standard of identity for many products, including jerky, ground beef, bacon, meat, and poultry. All right, this is what drives me crazy. The USDA does indeed have a standard of identity. And, you know, this was a good thing that like when you're selling something and you're calling it butter and you're not saying it's plant-based or anything, you're calling it butter. So people think it's, you can't put margarine in it. Like it has to actually be butter. And it has a standard of identity for a lot of products. They were not, when they were creating these, they, they did not have in, in mind plant-based products. So the problem is, is that the USDA may have a standard of identity and may say, if you're selling something as something, it, it has to meet certain qualifications. But that doesn't mean that the USDA owns the language. This is a really important point. You can't like legislate the language. And if people want to use butter to describe a plant-based product and they are not at all confused about what they're eating, well, the USDA is not allowed to say, no, you can't use that word. They don't own the language. All right. This makes me upset. I think you can tell. It makes Mindy upset too. We have witnessed what has happened with the terms butter and milk in recent years. We do not want that to happen in this industry. Yeah, they like, do you really think that anybody's buying all those plant-based milks because they don't know they're plant-based? Uh, no. What's happened with the terms milk is that people tried them because they knew what, that they were supposed to be similar to the animal-based milk to taste similar to it. And so they bought them and they liked them better. That's what they're really afraid of. All right. All right. I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> all right. From whatpoultry.com. Hope urges inclusion but headlines say eat less meat. Now, from this, you would think that the headlines completely hijacked and changed what the Pope said. That's not what happened here. 
This is by one Benjamin Ruiz. And he's talking about the European Union Youth Conference. You may have seen a headline about this. As he points out, the, the headlines about the article, about this speech, was that the Pope urged people to eat less meat to save the planet. Benjamin decided to do some research about it. And he said that the, the Vatican published a message about all the things that the Pope said. And you'll be surprised to hear that his entire speech was not about eating less meat. Like, who thought it was? He also spoke about staying in line with Christian beliefs, fraternity with immigrants, good for him, inclusion, open-mindedness, nonviolence, and a life without luxury and wastefulness, Ukraine, war. He praised the youth as new minds that could change the world. And within that speech, he mentioned it is urgent to reduce consumption, not only of fossil fuels, but also of many superfluous things. And in certain areas of the world, it would be convenient to consume less meat which can help to save the environment. Well, that's really nice to hear the Pope go in there because uh, the Pope, you know, influences a lot of people. He could have said it a little stronger, but, you know, uh, it's good. Good. I'm happy with it. Well, Benjamin is not. He says nothing is mentioned about fossil fuels. And it, he just said that the Pope said that it is urgent to reduce consumption and not only fossil fuels. So maybe he's talking about in the, uh, in, in the headlines. Well, you know, maybe the headlines pulled out the most unusual thing that the Pope said, this is kind of a new place for the Pope to go. I don't care why they pulled it out. They never implied it was the only thing he said. It's a really good point and something that might have surprised a lot of people. It makes Benjamin wonder, who is behind all this? Is this intentional? Did the same person write one press release and then everybody replicated it without reading the original speech? Where are the press releases from animal protein producers associations refuting this deliberate misleading information? Well, what's misleading? There's nothing misleading here. You're not even saying because even Benjamin, even Benjamin concedes that the Pope shouldn't be blamed. And he said it would be convenient to consume less meat in certain areas of the world, i.e. Europe in this case, and by extension, the rich countries. And apparently he thinks that's fine. So what's the problem here? I really don't know. But Benjamin thinks it's misinformation and he blames those who replicate it. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music, Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in.